Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. I'll be honest, when I think of therapy, the image of Tony Soprano and Dr. Melfi come to mind. We've spoken to a bunch of coaches on this podcast, but many listeners have asked for the therapist's perspective. Today's guest is Maya Benatar, a music therapist and psychotherapist in New York City. Maya gives us the lay of the land of therapy. We talk about cultural stigmas, the different approaches such as CBT or psychodynamics, and the difference between trauma with a big T and a little T. And guess what? Most of us have experienced trauma with a little T in the form of bullying, otherness, and insecurities such as body image. We talk about the myth of being emotionally self-sufficient, Maya's work in helping her clients hold dual perspectives, picking podcasts over music, and navigating the emotional side of Tinder, which thankfully is not on my list of concerns. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. Today's guest is Maya Benatar. How's it going, Maya? It's going really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm um, really excited. So maybe like, let's just start with childhood. Where where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your backstory. Sure. I grew up in a little town about an hour, hour and 15 north of New York City at the end of the commuter rail called Brewster. And I grew up playing in the woods and lived on a dead end road and, you know, rode my bike kind of deal. And I ended up living for about 10 years in New York City, which is a huge change for me. And now I've just recently gone back to living just out of the city. So kind of having a little bit of a transition period. And you mentioned before we started recording that there was performance in your life. What type of performance and what what age? Did yeah, that I didn't emerge? mention that. Did I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I grew up in a really musical family. My maternal grandfather was a cantor and an opera singer. The opera was mainly in Germany before World War II, and my parents, my brother, are both musical, and so I sing. And so I've been singing, gosh for as long as I can remember in high school, middle school and high school, I was really involved with voice lessons, piano lessons, musical theater, vocal competitions, that kind of stuff. And I just really loved it. I was a really shy kid, but I could perform in front of 200 people with no problem. But I couldn't ask the kid in front of me in math class to borrow a pencil. But I really, performing just tapped into a different part of me. So I really enjoy that. And what did you study in college? So I studied music therapy in college, both undergraduate and graduate school. Could you say a little bit more about music therapy in general and also as a, as a major? Yeah. Well, as an undergraduate major, it's essentially like doing two, maybe three majors. It's quite, quite intensive. Doing all the background stuff in music, so studying your main instrument, learning how to arrange, how to assess, learning all the music history stuff, and then a ton of psychology classes history of human behavior, group dynamics, all these really in-depth psychology classes, and then the combination of the two. So how to assess people for specific needs, and then how to adapt goal-oriented music experiences to meet those therapeutic needs. 
So it's pretty intensive. So that's what I did for undergrad at SUNY New Paltz up in the the mountains, I guess, in just south of Albany. And then for grad school, I moved to New York City and I went to NYU, also for music therapy, which was also a really intense and really great program. Did you have exposure to the practice of therapy or knowledge of therapy? Not really. Like I said, my mom is a social worker. When I was growing up, she was working at a place called Green Chimneys, which is still in existence as a therapeutic farm, a therapeutic residential treatment program on a farm, essentially. (laughs) <laughs> that makes more I was sense. thinking like the the <laughs> like a pig on a couch. No. <laughs> it was a working farm, and it was also a residential treatment program mm. um, for kids and teens. A lot of whom had been in the foster care system, mainly foster care system, I believe. Um, uh, some mental health stuff, and it was a very intense setting. And actually, grew up. That was like five minutes from our house, so I grew up exposed to that kind of work, that kind of holistic, embodied mm-hmm. way to help kids and help teenagers. But I don't really remember a whole lot of exposure, and I probably would remember, so it's safe to say maybe there wasn't, a whole lot of exposure to therapy in general. I knew what she did. I knew that, you know, I really admired her career Mm -hmm. and all that. And I just, it just felt right. The other part that made me think that music therapy would be a good fit is that my grandfather, who I mentioned, I was probably a freshman or a sophomore in high school when he was diagnosed with dementia. And I witnessed throughout his process of the dementia process, which lasted about four or five years, if I'm remembering correctly. He eventually lost the, really the ability to speak. He didn't you know, know our names, but he always was singing. Mm. Has the field of therapy changed in the 15 years since you started and one one way because i mean 15 years ago for me i was probably i was in college around college age a little bit after and maybe it's just my upbringing but therapy back then still had like a lot of negative stigma towards it where something was wrong with you if you went to therapy and i know culturally you know, the thought of like for my Cambodian parents, the thought of even talking about therapy is like, no, 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 no. Like we're <laughs> impregnable. We're emotionally impregnable. Right. <laughs> um, and then today therapy, it's like people talk openly about it. It doesn't really seem that taboo. If anything, it, it a lot of people are proud of the of, of that. So curious about have you seen that shift? You know, and that's a huge question. Let me sit with that for a second. I think, yes, the field of therapy in general has shifted a lot. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I mean, I you know, I really resonate with what you're saying about cultural kind of expectations and feelings around therapy. Yeah, I mean, one thing, you know, and so I'm a music therapist and a psychotherapist, and so I can kind of come at this from multiple angles. Music therapy has been around since after World War Oh gosh, it was either World it was World War One. Okay. World War One when musicians started to work with soldiers who had PTSD, yeah. though they didn't call it that at the time. That that term didn't come into existence until after Vietnam, I believe. And so in the past fifteen years, the field of music therapy has expanded incredibly. Gabby Giffords, the congresswoman who was shot in the head, received music therapy and that was actually highlighted on like I think it was Dr. Sanjay Gupta's CNN. Um, He followed her through a day of therapy, and she credits music therapy with helping her learn how to talk again. So the field has gotten a lot more exposure, particularly over the past five, 10 years. As far as if we pull back the lens, as far as therapy in general, there's there's still stigma. 
I think maybe there's less. I think in a place like New York City, yeah, therapy is often more kind of socially acceptable, if you will. You know, I have friends who openly, I mean, they know I'm a therapist also, but they openly talk about like, oh, I talked about that with my therapist or I'm going to talk about that with my therapist. And there's less of a like, I'm sneaking out at lunchtime, you know, to run to the store. You know, people are like, I'm going to therapy. Mm -hmm. But there is still work to be done. And it's really hard to go up against long held beliefs like the ones you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe for our listeners, part of the context was for having you or or a therapist on the show as a guest is that there's been all different flavors of coaches, life coaches, money coaches. And a lot of a lot of people had asked it's like, is that is that enough? And or what's the difference? And you may not know what a life coach does, but do you have a do you have a sense of this kind of life coaching for sure has like skyrocketed in oh, popularity. Yeah. It feels oh, like yeah. everyone has a coach. <laughs> I, I've had three in the past two years, and, and, and we can come back to me. But interesting, I still like therapy is still like a line a little bit too far to cross. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk more about that. Well, I think you know a question in that area is what we believe therapists actually do, you know, and there's, there's different ways of, you know, it's like what we think therapists do. And then what we believe, like what's, and you don't have to answer this, but you can sit with the question of like, what's stopping you from going into therapy? Yeah, You know, a lot of times I'll have people meet me and, and I'm, you know, I'm young and I'm a woman and, oh, you don't look like a therapist. I'm like, Okay. Yeah. You know, and I, this is how I dress. Yeah. And of course, on podcasts, you can <laughs> see what I'm wearing, but I'm wearing jeggings yeah. and boots and like a pretty casual top. This is how I dress yep. when I'm seeing clients. Yeah. You know, I'm going back to the office to see clients. And so I'm in many ways, you know, move outside of this preconceived idea. Maybe people don't realize they have certain ideas that like, therapists are all old mm-hmm. or they're Tony all Soprano. boring or <laughs> Tony Soprano that's, or yeah that's no, all totally. I think about totally or you know they're Sigmund Freud or they make you lie down or oh my gosh what are some other what are some other like ideas that you've heard around therapy yeah mostly like dentist like they think like dental offices and just like antiquated unrelatable like a doctor like a totally. real like doctor that yeah and so, you know, I can share that I don't have a PhD. I don't think that that makes me any less of a therapist. You know, I have a master's, I'm licensed and all that jazz. But I have met, you know, therapists with PhDs who are so relatable. And I have met therapists, you know, it, it it's all in the personality. But I think there is this idea of like therapists as expert. And there's some older, quote unquote, schools of thought in therapy that the therapist should be a blank slate, not just be available and present for the for the client and you know kind of nod smile maybe offer a little feedback not really share much about themselves not really give any advice you just kind of like go and like spill your guts and then you're done that's not how I work there's many ways to characterize the difference between psychotherapy and life coaching and yes, I agree with you that pretty much everyone has a coach. I have a coach myself, actually, more around the business side of stuff. And I have a therapist. There is intersection between the two. And I find in certain points in my life and certain points in my practice, I've really needed more of one or the other. Right now, I have both. And I'm really loving the interplay between both. And they give me different kinds of support. Yeah. I, I, I will answer because I've actually never 
pondered why I kind of draw that line. I think the first, so I'm thinking on the fly now, the first is an association between trauma and therapy and having, but again, then the next question is what is trauma? We can talk um, about that, yep. And so as someone that had, uh, you know, a very solid middle class upbringing where, you know, I have trauma by my own sense of the definition or my understanding of the definition, there, there was none. So that's kind of one line that like maybe mentally I don't want to cross or, or maybe by being open, by having a therapist, it's like acknowledging that there's trauma. That's, that's one line. Another line is probably around depression. Where again, I don't, I don't really. You're like, you or I'm forcing myself to really actually define what these words mean, yeah. like with real words mm-hmm. versus just abstract concepts in my head. Depression. My wife always teases me because, like, when when I met her, and my wife's very much kind of an inward and complex thinker. And when I met her, I think I was thirty, and I was like, "Yeah, it's just been ten years of fun." And she's like, 10 years of fun? Like, who says that?" <laughs> but but I do think that I, you know, there's a there's a happy persona, and I assertively self-report as a happy person. If you were to like ask me, and so then there's that. Well, I don't need it because it's like I don't have. I'm not depressed, but I mean, I've spent the past, you know, we were talking before, I've spent the past three years kind of unpacking so many mental, like very difficult mental constructs that were getting in my way that were causing me a tremendous amount of anxiety. I've done that all with different life coaches. So, but yeah, there's no no answer there, but that that's me sharing kind of that yeah. where I see the line. Thank you. Yeah. And there's a lot that can be unpacked around like who needs therapy and even just the need Mm -hmm. and this idea and this comes back to a lot of you know societal views of therapy of a lot of people will wait to go to therapy until they're in crisis yes you know until they're in full-blown crisis whatever that means and that's going to look different for everyone but essentially crisis meaning they're at the point where they're not functioning yep whether that you know and again there there's a wide range there yes (laughs) But a lot of people wait till they're in crisis until they feel really, really, really stuck. Their relationships might be suffering. Their work might be suffering. They just feel really crappy. A lot of people wait until that point. And a lot of people then consequently, when they feel better, will leave therapy. This is I'm speaking in like really broad general terms about like therapy at large. And there's, you know, for some people, a short term process is what they need. You know, I'll share that when I was in grad school, I was having a lot of trouble with insomnia and related to that also anxiety and anxiety leads to insomnia and insomnia leads to anxiety. It's a vicious cycle. And I ended up getting therapy through NYU's student health department. And they give you, I think it's 10 sessions for free with your student health insurance. And I had other health insurance and I could have gone elsewhere. But at the time, what I really needed and what they provided was a short term process very CBT oriented. Now, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, similar in some ways to life coaching. The thing about life coaching is that it isn't as regulated as therapy. So there are life coaches, A, there are life coaches who are also therapists, but life coaches often will pull from many different schools of thought. That's, you know, neither here nor there at this second in time. But anyway, did a short-term process of CBT, of cognitive behavioral therapy, focused around changing my beliefs and my thoughts about my sleep. So I was in this place of like, I'm not going to go to sleep because then I won't sleep and then I won't be able to get up and then I'll be really tired. 
And so, you know, did such concrete things such as keeping a sleep journal, noticing wake up and and go to sleep times, noting when I had caffeine, noting when I was letting my thoughts spiral and when I could catch them, things like that. Consequently, and I was just having this conversation with someone this morning, had I gone to a therapist who worked from a more psychodynamic perspective, now psychodynamic perspective is taking into account relationships, how you function in certain relationships, perhaps family history, all of that stuff. That's not what I needed at that point. That, I mean, there's a lot there. And I, you know, I work with a therapist now who's more psychodynamically focused to unpack some of that stuff that helps me be a better therapist, a better wife, a better friend, all of that stuff. But at that time, that's not what I needed. I was also able to identify that that's not what I needed, which is a big piece of it. I think I might have gotten away from your question. No, and I guess, but you led to another question. If if you were to generally, and using broad brushstrokes, like different schools, like you're saying CBT, I've heard it. I didn't, I don't really, now I know what it is, so thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) And psychodynamics, you Mm said, that's kind of, the therapy, like the Tony Soprano type <laughs> therapy that I... I think Tony Soprano didn't didn't do therapists any favors, yes. but... I and mean, then are there other just like big There are, pillars? yeah, there are. But I think what's also important to note is that because just because I tend to work in a more psychodynamic way doesn't mean that we go like all in, you know, in the first session that I'm like, so tell me about your yeah. parents and tell me about this. and tell. It is about titrating the process, particularly for someone who's never been in therapy. So it's about, you know, I always say this, it could take us six to eight sessions to get to know each other, to feel comfortable. I've had clients who I've been with for several years, perhaps the initial, often the initial crisis that led them to therapy about of anxiety, about of identity stuff has passed. And now they can actually work on stuff that's a little deeper down that kept getting shoved away because of all the top level yeah. stuff. Yeah. I often, you know, I use the metaphor often, it was created a few years ago, I think, with a client of a flower. And so there are many kind of many ways to care for a flower. We can do the above the soil work, and that's really important. You need to water a flower, you need to prune it, you need to make sure it gets enough sun. I think that's it. I'm actually not a very good gardener. <laughs> fertilizer. <laughs> but yeah, fertilizer, <laughs> all that like above the soil work. And sometimes that's what the flower needs. But if the flower is still in some way struggling, you can go below the soil and look at, okay, maybe, and this is where my gardening skills leave me, but you can look at, like, is the pH balance off? Learned that from my dad. Is the pH balance off? Is this just not good soil? There are different types of soil. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so the way that I work is both above the soil and below the soil. Do you think that, so that leads to two questions. Do you think that, I've heard a few people say that, and again, keep in mind that this audience is very kind of hyper driven Mm -hmm. and type A, but I've heard people say, I use therapy as offense versus defense in the sense that I think defense being like above the soil mm-hmm. and offense being like, let's get to the kind of root cause before the root cause catches up to us. So I guess that's the first reflection. Does that say it again that people use therapy as offense? Versus... Uh, like defense being like solving oh. a problem yeah, and yeah. offense being like preventing a problem yeah. from arising. 
That, yes. Is that a fair way to even think about it? It can be. Yeah. Sports are not my <laughs> my forte, so I had to think for a minute. Yeah, <laughs> Offense no. and defense where I used to run, which has none of that. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. I like that. And that's a little less of the Band-Aid approach yeah. of like when a problem comes up, I'll fix it, yeah. which to be completely fair is what I did with my insomnia. But on a really broad sense, I think that's what Western medicine does. And I'm speaking super broad strokes. Yeah, yeah. But when a problem comes up, I fix it. When a pro- And sometimes you need that, right? Like if you get cancer, you need chemo. But I can relate this briefly. I grew up, my mother was very into, is very into homeopathic medicine. And so I was that weird kid in school with the little blue and white tubes. And when I had a headache, I would, you know, first try one of those. The backstory is that I had chronic ear infections as a baby and the antibiotics stopped working at a point. I mean, chronic as in like every other week. And so she discovered, I think in France, where homeopathy is quite big, she discovered homeopathy and she got a lot of crap from doctors. This is in the early 80s. You know, you're not giving her the antibiotics. What's wrong with you? The The homeopathic medicine always worked. But then on the flip side, when my mom had cancer about 10, 12, gosh, what year is it? Almost 15 years ago, she had chemo. There was no question in her mind. She wasn't going to cure her cancer with, you know, crystals and and homeopathy. There's nothing wrong with either one of those things. And so I feel like that can relate in a way to what you're saying about the defense and the offense. There's this holistic view of the body and homeopathy. And so I still, you know, I have homeopathic medicine with me. I'll use essential oils, things like that, that because everything is connected. You know, if I get a headache, it's likely that my shoulders are tight, that I haven't stretched. And so my hips are tight, you know, it's all connected. But the last time I had strep, I sat at the doctors with my hand out and was like, please give me antibiotics. You know, no, that makes a lot of sense. And so it's okay to have both. I think, I think we tend to be kind of an either or society, right? We are an either or society. And the other question about the plant of the flower metaphor, this I, I hear more from men and they say, I guess it would be in the psycho, what is it? The psychodynamic. psychodynamic. They say, I don't want to go there because I'm scared of what I'll uncover. Yes. Is that a common? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Not only from men, but from women as well. I know it's like, again, using broad strokes. We can broad stroke it, yeah. How do you, what's the response to that? Well, if I'm sitting with someone who says, you know, I don't want to go there, I'm afraid of what it'll uncover. First of all, I'll say, well, if you're sitting with me, there's some little part of you that is ready, that does want to go there, you know? And so we'll, we'll kind of separate out that part, you know? Like if you, made, if you made the decision to call me, to come in, to reach out, there's some part of you that is ready to go there. Of course it's scary. Of course it's scary. Like this is not easy work, right? And the work of being a human, being an adult, being, a, you know, in relationship whether that means, you know, with a partner, with kids, with coworkers, being in relationship is hard. So I might, to answer your question, I might, you know, speak directly to that part of like, okay, there's some part of you that's ready. Or I might ask, what, where is there? What is going there mean? They may not be able to answer that, but I might just leave it out there. Or to make it really safe, I most often will say, we don't have to go there right now. You know, I mean... And I think that comes back to these cultural ideas of of therapy as like these constant deep dives, you know, and I have been trained. I've done a lot of postgraduate work around trauma treatment, but even 
especially trauma treatment, is about safety. If you And that holds true for therapy, whether it's trauma-related or not. If you don't have safety, forget it. And, and you know, just, again, it's amazing just having to put words behind the word, right? You know, trauma, mm-hmm. depression, there. Like, what the fuck <laughs> is, there? is there? Like, Where is there? What is there? And that, yeah, totally. It's and like I avoidance think, in, in kind of using those. Yeah, well, really language, language is a tool and language... Okay, language is a tool, comma, both for connecting and for avoidance. And that's a natural human response. And that's part of the beauty of being articulate, intelligent adults, that we have this capacity for language, and it also becomes a way to get distance. And that's part of what I really love about the way that I work as a music therapist. I have all these other ways that I can work with people. Now, all of my clients are articulate, intelligent adults and and I you know I admire that about them but also sometimes that gets them stuck you know like kind of what you're identifying of like I could just talk about this but what the crap does it mean and so that's where all of the the body-based approaches and music is can be felt so deeply in the body in the emotional realm where it's a way to kind of step out of words and explore like what is there. Yep. Okay. Let's, you know, if some, for example, if someone was like, I don't want to go there, but they're curious about like, what is there? Where is there? Where did I even get this idea? I was like, okay, when you think of there and just to, you know, sit with the word, notice what you feel in your body, yeah. you know, notice, is there a heaviness? Is there a sensation somewhere? Does it have a color? Does it have a texture? And, you know, I'm very influenced by mindfulness and how I work. And so even just pausing to notice, sometimes people may say, like, I don't notice anything. There's nothing there, you know, and then they're like, and Maya's crazy. But even just the pausing is the important part. And a lot of us, I grew up with a little more exposure to that. But a lot of people my age and older and younger, that's just not part of their repertoire, not not part of their way of being, you know. And so then we might just be curious about, like, what's coming up in your body because our bodies hold a lot of information. You know, we hold on to experiences. We hold on to trauma. And I do want to circle back to your trauma thing. All of that shows up in our bodies in ways that we don't have language for. Let's, I, let's, let's go back to the trauma mm-hmm. question because it is this, like, it's this gigantic word that has, you know, in my mind, just such a, it's so rife with, negative connotation and and bad stuff you know yeah so trauma is yes it has a lot of negative connotations and i think i know that throughout history there's been this idea of therapists for people who've experienced trauma or who or who have like an active mental illness right and we're kind of playing with this line of that's not necessarily the case and so we could also sit with that same thing around trauma that number one trauma is not is not what you think it is <laughs> like a good <laughs> like a good advertisement like late night like, ads like trauma is not t- what you think trauma is not what you think it is i'm being facetious but there is some truth to that so there's been a lot written about trauma in the past like 10 15 years Bessel van der Kolk is a psychiatrist who's written a lot of great stuff about trauma peter levine some really great resources about how trauma shows up in the body and what actually is trauma. 
So I think it was one of those two, blanking on which one, defines trauma as not just single event things. So we often think of trauma as single event occurrences that are horrific. And I mean, some you know, these ter- terrible things like rape, war, genocide, a really bad car accident, mm-hmm. death, like anything. You know, death, violence, things like that. Those are trauma for sure. They're considered big T traumas. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have what's called little T traumas. And so pretty much everyone has experienced little T trauma. And so I pause for that because because it is true it's a sobering thing but little t trauma is the trauma of being bullied incessantly as a kid and it's not really framed that way and i know that bullying's only really come to the forefront fairly recently as yeah. something that's difficult for mm-hmm. kids 20 25 years ago yeah. and i'm speaking from personal experience it was not really recognized yeah. you know like boys will be boys yeah. it's like playground all of, you know yeah. all of all the, the things, things that we're hearing yeah. a lot lately so it's little t traumas are things like getting bullied or growing up as a child of divorce and having the the constant push and pull between parents a, a lack body of image for that body Im- yeah body image stuff things that are more pervasive that you may function very well day to day, but things that happen in little bits over long periods of time. Essentially, trauma is anything that you feel very deeply or that you don't feel because sometimes trauma kind of pulls us back so strongly that we lose this connection to feeling. But trauma is anything that you feel very deeply. And that's a sentence that I'll often, I think it's from one of Peter Levine's books, if I'm not mistaken. That's a sentence that I'll say often in session because I'll have clients say like, well, that wasn't, you know, that's not trauma. And the reality is, is that trauma is, is really so many things. It's being displaced from your home when it's not of your own choosing, right? It's being made fun of. Being made fun of. Because you look a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really a lot of that. So by that definition, which resonates, you know, really deeply through research that's been done and through people's mm-hmm. experiences, everyone has experienced some form of trauma. Yeah. Now, the way that everyone deals with it is different. You know, so some people deal with it in, in different ways. Some people have different support systems than others do. You know, it, it really, it varies. Yeah. I would venture to guess, I know for myself and probably for a lot of our listeners, little T traumas are like they're second class citizens in the sense that like you don't, and it goes back to the stigma. Mm-hmm. It's like, suck it up, you know? Yeah. They're, they're, it feels like little T's are like, just get over yourself or plow through it. So actually research has shown that if you have just one big T trauma, like let's say you were raped one time and you processed it and dealt with it is has less effect on your long-term functioning than a series of little t traumas holy crap i know that's insane yeah i was i was just thinking about you know the the little t's and and the listeners have heard the stories but like i was really skinny like not cool and like had a funny way of walking and like started losing my hair earlier in life and like so when i like go through the list of little t's i was like man there's like a lot of little t's but none of those things in and of themselves 
in my perception of the world are like worth anyone feeling sorry for me and that, and it, and if yeah. anything i would okay. say yeah. i would say it, it maybe an even more dangerous thing is that i kind of took them as like a rallying cry to kind of prove myself sure a lot um, of people do that i mean so, can i just say that that's yeah. really that's that's how a lot of people cope and i think yeah. that you know for me the past couple of years have been finally talking to those and addressing mm-hmm. them and honoring them yeah and really feeling liberated from them but at the same time realizing like holy shit like my entire adult life was built around making sure these things never happened again or making sure that those feelings never came up again, whether it's like through having a certain amount of money or through having a certain amount of status or through through looking a certain way physically. Yeah, no no conclusion there, but right. like that that's kind you. of how yeah. how I it's all manifested in, in my my own experience. Yeah. I mean it, it manifests differently for everyone, you know, and it's it's not a judgment. It's just an observation that that some. I also think there's an idea that trauma means that you're incapacitated, that you're not able to function, mm-hmm. and I think especially around little t traumas, things related to identity and belonging and all of that. Most people are able to function, but there's maybe something missing, and some people aren't aware of that or just don't feel like going there. Yep. If I could you know, loop us back, but. A lot of people that I've worked with, a lot of women I've worked with, when they come into therapy, they're they're ready enough to figure out what's missing, yeah. you know, and and a lot of them, you know, function very well in the outside world, yeah. you know, have jobs, have kids, have mm-hmm. prestigious degrees and or whatever it is, yeah. you know, have a lot of the outward trappings of success, mm-hmm. but something is feeling kind of undone or not finished. And a lot of times that can be related to developmental trauma, which is related to little t's, but it's around how you were brought up. So developmental traumas sometimes is having, you know, parents who were not able to be attentive or available to you. You know, maybe they provided for all of your material needs, but when you came to them crying because you'd skin your knee, they were like, you're fine, you know, or things like that. Or parents who were verbally abusive, but never crossed the line to physically. And in your mind, physical abuse was traumatic or things like that. And so a lot of, you know, like what I was saying before, a lot of what our bodies hold on to is from our preverbal time. So usually like birth to like two or three. But even then what happens to us gets stored in our bodies. And so these early experiences of how and this this is related to attachment theory, this idea of how we connect from from infancy, how we connect with our primary caregivers is related to how we connect with others as we get older. There was a great article in the New York Times, I think it was last year, early this year, about attachment theory and how it's related to romantic relationships. You're talking about the period up until age three or just as as so uh, age children? Three is con- up till age three is considered like the pre-verbal stage, but really anything that happens to you when you are dependent on another person for your safety and your well-being. So for most of us, that's what, 18, 21, you know, somewhere in that range impacts how we are in relationships. So, you know, for example, if you had a mom who was alternately too, you know, overbearing, you know, sometimes that that helicopter parent thing, or was just like depressed and pulled back, 
there's many different styles of attachment. And so the idea is that a good way to think about it is when a kid starts walking and they start walking away from their parent, most of the time, pretty much all the time, at some point they'll realize they're walking on their own and they'll look back Mm -hmm. for reassurance. And if they have a parent, and I I say parent instead of mom because the old literature always said mother and I just think that's not true, but there is... There's something there. But anyway, when they look back, if their parent is saying, you got this, you're really good, and they're still available for them, this child will learn that I can do this, but I have support if I need it. If they turn and look back and their their parent is right behind them waiting to catch them, it'll instill this fear of like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm going to fall. You know, or if they turn around and their parent has left the room or the parent is, you know, engrossed in something else on their phone. It, it's kind of, there's all these different styles of attachment. Um, and so it's, it's this really interesting interplay between how, how our earliest relationships inform how we show up in the world as adults. Speaking in, you mentioned words of like, people are high achievers mm-hmm. and they've got these like great lives and like, and there's something missing. Yeah. And I can say, I mean, the entire podcast and newsletter and everything that I've built around Rad Reads is about that thing that's missing. And I'm just going to tell our listeners that we're going to probably be overly broad in talking about this just by the nature of your work. But what are some of those things that are missing? Because, I mean, you you work in New York with high-achieving individuals. Yeah. So it's different for every person. And it really is such an individual thing to draw like some broad strokes for some people. What's missing is a capacity to be in intimate relationships, to actually be vulnerable, to actually say what they need. You know, they may be really good at showing up and at work and managing different projects and, you know, doing all that, that cognitive stuff. But when it comes to like, like sitting in their heart space, if I could be totally woo woo for a second and being really connected to another person, that's an, that's a a that, that's a there kind of thing for other people. It's being able to state their needs. You know, needs are a big part of it. I'm drawing, I'm, I'm realizing, I mean, a lot of people I work with are, are similar in many ways, though they're different in many ways, if that makes sense. But for a lot of the people that I work with, have worked with over the years, it's the capacity to be vulnerable and intimate, to be to allow things to be messy, to sit with messy emotions, you know, that emotions are not black and white, yeah. that there's a lot of gray space. And so to be able to find the gray space, live in the gray space, because we don't live purely in black and white, the ability to just be, be in certain emotions, to be in sadness, to be in anxiety, to be in overwhelm and not get taken under by the wave. I mean, I could go on and yeah. on. a lot of stuff. <laughs> when you, you pause and you mention needs, what do you mean by needs? So I think for a lot of the, the people that I've worked with, they're really good. And I, I, I should say I primarily work with women, but I think that this goes yeah. across the boards, that a lot of them are really good at putting aside their own needs to meet the needs of others. I mean, you're a parent, right? So this is not an unfamiliar thing to you. So this idea of like being able to say, I have needs, whatever those needs are, and to have that be heard and understood, a little less of like the self-sacrificial aspect, which a lot of people, especially higher achievers, get really good at, right? It's like, because I can push through, then I should. And 
personally, I've always prided myself on my self-sufficiency. Yeah, me too. Where <laughs> I don't want, I don't want help. I want to know that I can survive without help. It's very exhausting. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> to to live that way. Yeah. And again, I mean, are there methods that allow people to kind of let that guard down? Or? I don't know that there's one method. Yeah. I should say that that is something that really resonates for me yeah. personally. It's about finding the the middle ground and, you know, the middle space, whatever you want to call it, the fine line, whatever, about being self-sufficient enough and being attached and asking enough, right? So the idea is not that you can never be self-sufficient. You must always be dependent on other people. You must always like hold your hands out and say, I have nothing, give me things. Because I do tend to be a a fairly self-sufficient person. And that was part of my own process in relationship to learn how to say like, I can't do this. Will you help me? You know? And so I guess if there's a method, so to speak, it's to explore what comes up. You know, when asking for help, like with a particular client, it's like, you know, if you tell your husband, I can't do all of this, A, will he help you? And if the answer is yes, then what's stopping you? You know, and a lot of times that's not a conscious process. It's not a, he's not going to help me. He hates me. He sucks. Maybe it's a, you know, my father never helped my mother or I have to be able to do everything. I have to be, I don't know if the superwoman you know, is a conscious process, but it's a lot of women embody that, right? I just, I can do it all. I can be it all. And so it's about finding that line between, you know, doing enough, not having to do everything and being able to be grounded enough in your self-sufficiency, but also realize that you're not an island. Yeah. Throughout our conversation, maybe I've just become more aware of this with age. A lot of it is about holding like dual views. Oh yes. Oh yes. I mean, that's, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and it, it sounds so obvious, right? Even saying it out loud, it's I'm like, It's not that Duh. obvious. It's not that obvious. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what I, what I talk about with clients is, you know, and of course no one can see me, but I'm holding out both hands of like finding not only the middle space, yeah. but about holding more than one thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of us live in that place emotionally of like, I need to be happy. I can be nothing else but happy, mm-hmm. just for an example. And you can be happy in yeah. one hand and anxious, sad, scared, annoyed, frustrated in the other one yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Like, but it's about holding the duality yeah. between anything, between, you know, feelings, between roles, yeah. you know, between being grounded enough and open enough. Right. So like it's a hard thing for a lot of people. And this is the relationship piece that I was talking about. A lot of people that I work with in some way struggle in relationship, whether it's getting their needs met or not settling for the same or not repeating the same patterns. You know, I work with a lot of women around their patterns around dating. And so a lot of them are like, I keep dating the same guy or the same thing keeps happening or this. And so we look at like, what is this pattern? You know, what's going on? And I can't tell them, okay, if you do these seven things, yeah. seven being a completely arbitrary number I just made up, you will find the man, of, the your man of your dreams walking down Fifth Avenue tomorrow. But we work on like, how do you want to show up in relationship? If this next Tinder date is the man of your dreams or if he completely sucks, doesn't so much matter. I mean, it matters, but doesn't so much matter in terms of like how you want to be. Does that make sense? It does. But hearing that, it's not really a confidence 
or maybe confidence or lack thereof becomes a byproduct. I think confidence is in there. Is, it's is in the in mix. There. Yeah, because there. it takes a lot of confidence to step out of a pattern that you've been perpetrating for a long time. Got it. You know, if you think about like maybe habits or patterns that you have that maybe you've been doing them for, you know, 20 yeah. years or something, it takes a lot of confidence to be like, you know what, if I totally screw this up, I'm going to be okay yeah. and, you know, people are still going to like me and, yeah, you know... Yeah, confidence is in there. Yeah. It's both a byproduct and whatever comes before yeah. a byproduct. <laughs> One question that, that in thinking about your work with music, I really, you know, I have this complicated um, relationship with music. Uh, and But it's really, my listeners will know that I have this very complicated relationship with my own mortality and, and time, specifically time. And there was a point in my life where I basically stopped listening to music. And it really came around like podcasts. But but basically what, what happened was uh, music became labeled in my own head as non-productive activity. Mm-hmm. And so every day, like my head is just a running calculus of like what's the most productive activity. And so music like got shot down to the bottom of the list and like brought up were like the biography of George Washington and (laughs) you know some like some article about polarization in the United States or like a podcast and even God forbid even and I'll admit this to you but even when I listen to music now I listen to it like almost in an analytical way, like I'm, like I'm getting something out of it by, like listening to like you know hi, where the hi hat comes in and like the, things like <laughs> yeah. that. And I just can't like sit and just enjoy music for what it is. So I know I just like dumped a lot on no, you. No, that's really interesting. I mean, the first things that that come to mind, and you don't have to answer these, but this is perhaps just to give an illustration of where I would go yeah. with something like this, would be a curiosity around what your relationship with music used to be like, you know, a complicated relationship with music is not unusual. Just like this like innocuous thing in our lives. I have one. Yeah. And this, you know, and I'm a music therapist. Everyone has one for me. You know, it's music is so intertwined in my identity and my cultural background and my family's life that I don't think I could stop listening to it. But I've had times when I barely listen to music outside of like the music that's in sessions with clients or I go home and I'm listening to music that my clients brought into sessions. And then I'm like, and I've had periods over months um, where I'm like, wait, what's my music? This is their music. What's mine. But to get back to what you were saying, you know, I'd be curious about like, what was your relationship with music? Like when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, what role was it given in your family? You know, I work with a lot of people who took piano lessons as a kid and <laughs> you just nailed it. Like, <laughs> it was uh, just a hunch. It was uh, just a hunch. <laughs> I'm just like, free. I'm just starting to shake my head and I'm like, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So yes, yeah. I've had a lot of clients who are like, I have these terrible memories of you know this awful piano teacher the suzuki method yeah oh god the suzuki method yeah the suzuki method for those of you who don't know is fairly rigid way of learning an instrument piano primarily but i think there's suzuki for violin and stuff it's a fairly rigid method in my experience so yes so that gives a flavor 
if you will, to your experience with music moving forward, right? It makes it this thing to be literally analyzed and to be kind of calculating about and to be, you know, and, and on a really broad level, music is this aesthetic emotional experience right i this great book by daniel levitin who is a neuroscientist and a jazz musician he wrote this is your brain on music which is a good book but he also wrote this the world in six songs fantastic book fantastic book and he talks about the six types of songs that shaped human nature why did i bring that up a it's a really good book there was something related to just music being this ex- aesthetic experience, but also the types of songs that we're drawn to or not drawn to can be indicative of what either happened to us or is happening at the current moment. I'm not totally sure if that answers your yeah, question no, at I, all. But I mean, just bringing back the Suzuki method yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. very, I mean, that was, that's 12 years of my history with music right that's, that's a, a long time that's a third of my life that, yeah that's a oh my god yeah that's and a really so long time. to know that with me music always has has some element of time achievement and action it's like a it's a you create you create it versus taking it in yeah you know? so i think you just solved yeah, your own question it's, <laughs> but it's, it's, i never you know hand, so, hand on my heart we didn't stage that yeah <laughs> So music can have multiple roles, right? Like you were saying before with the duality. Music, yes, is something to be often, to be performed, to be rehearsed, to be analyzed. I mean, there are music historians and critics for a reason, right? But music is also something, and so music is also something to be enjoyed, to be received. And so it's this dance between input and output, expressive and receptive, So a lot of times I have clients who, you know, either have a similar history with piano lessons or violin lessons or whatever, or they just are very analytical about music. You know, they maybe they know it really well. A lot of musicians have have issues with music, performance anxiety, or I can't just enjoy this because I'm listening for whatever they're listening for. And so that's where finding that gray space, being able to improvise comes in. So improvising is a really important thing in life, right? Being able to just fly by the seat of your pants, adjust, you know, if you're missing something, make it up or adapt, right? That's all improvising. In a musical sense, improvising is playing music that has not previously existed. Okay, yeah. Like jazz musicians will do sometimes when they're riffing, when they're just making it up. Very different than the Suzuki method. That makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) Of course. And I don't like jazz. (laughs) It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I like techno because it's so yeah, like methodical. So rhythmic, yeah. And so there there are parallels to be drawn for people, and you just drew them yourself, really, for people who, the idea of improvisation, the idea of jazz music is unsettling. There's a reason why. Yeah. And again, it's not for me to criticize, yeah. but just to like point out, it's hard to improvise. I was classically trained. So my main instrument is voice, and I was classically trained, which for the listeners means that I sang Italian arias and English art songs and some musical theater and, you know, standing up on the stage with nice posture and relaxed facial muscles. I, I was not singing jazz, you know, where you can, like, move around. And bl- so I get it to a certain extent. When I started improvising, it was so fucking scary. Yeah. But 
it's gotten a lot easier. And so there's a lot of parallels, right? I do tend, like I said before, to be a little bit of a type A person. And so that has improved a lot over the past couple years. And to some extent, yes, you know, the work that I'm doing on myself, but to some extent, this experience over years and years of being able to improvise musically, of being able to start something and not know where it'll end up. And if it gets messy, it gets messy. And there's a metaphor in there somewhere, I like to say, right? But like, it it bears a good question societally, culturally, like, what happens when we feel like we're messy? When we show up in a messy way, when we're not polished and perfect? It can kick up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Switching gears, but to something else we were talking about before. We're talking about the first generation kids and some of the unlearnings or how, maybe not unlearnings, but how as grown, as adults, we kind of reconcile things that we learn in our childhood. And I think for me, you know, as someone who's very close to my parents and who who really respects everything that they provided for us and wants to pass that on to my own kids, but also just by sheer change in circumstance meaning like my parents came here with with like barely any money and no language and nothing and like i'm a former you know managing director at blackrock yeah, it's like a little different <laughs> and, and so you know the this this kind of like the 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 process that i've felt or experienced is learning how to dis disassociate or unlearn certain values or core beliefs that I w- I grew up with as, as mm-hmm. truisms mm-hmm. while s- both of my parents are, are still alive and I'm close to them while being respectful to the heritage from which they came from and the people who instilled them. And, and that's just a complicated tension that I, you know, that one carries. I plant that as an open-ended comment to see, <laughs> to see where you take it. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that just... That really that resonated for me, you know, with with a similar with a similar experience of my own. And I hear, you know, there is there is tension, right? Like I'm very close to my parents as well. My dad was born in Morocco. And so different, you know, different values in some sense. Definitely he grew up in different way, has different ideas around work than maybe our typical American ideas. And again, very close to my parents. Really, really admire everything they've done. But it's interesting, and this is part of the work that I've been doing, you know, with myself, for myself, what we embody without realizing it, you know, like the the ideas, for example, the ideas that I, am, that I internalized, rather, the ideas that I internalized around work were really, really powerful. So when I was growing up, my dad owned a hardware store, and he worked very hard. I mean was gone by like 5am was, you know, like six days a week, probably 60 to 70 hours a week, kind of, kind of worker. He's a really, really hard worker. And so I grew up by the time I was like 12, I was working, you know, weekends, holidays. My mom also, you know, worked there part time. It was a family business essentially. And very quickly, and not to say that he, you know, he pushed me too hard and he definitely paid me, which not every kid who works in the family business gets, but I And I think some of this was my own character, right? That I just am a hard worker anyway. But I 
incorporated from my dad, you know, we pick up what we see without it being explicitly said. So I picked up that, you know, he worked so hard and so long. And so at 15, somehow I was unloading delivery trucks by myself, like 1500 pounds of stuff, like, really, like, that was probably a little too much. And this idea that like, if you're not working hard, you're not working. I think that's the biggest takeaway for me. And that's something that keeps that comes up for me, it'll probably just keep kind of yeah. circling up. This idea of like if stuff, I, I was listening to a podcast recently, this idea that if the same things come up, it doesn't mean that we're not working on them and healing them. It's that we're circling and rising and circling and rising. And so we'll meet the same or what looks like the same problem yeah. higher up on a spiral staircase, but it is slightly different. Yeah. So this, this idea of I have to work hard, I have to work hard. If I'm not working hard, I'm not working. Yeah was really instilled in me, you know? And it's only the, since probably since I hit my thirties that I'm like, oh, you mean I don't have to work really hard? You mean that I can work differently? Like I do something very different than what my dad does, obviously, but I can tell you're a hard worker. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm a hard worker. And, and just, you know, we, we just absorb so much of who our parents are. And I think that goes for just parents across the board that we just really, we take that in. And so it is, you know, to get back to what you're saying, it is, again, that duality of like respecting them, their values, what they gave to you. My parents gave so much to me, you know, and supported me consistently. It's not so much a disassociating, you know, disassociating like is like a really hard pullback. And no one can see but you the gesture that I'm making, but, you know, just like a quick pullback as if someone's like yanking you by the back of your neck. Or like how you pick up a cat, theoretically, if you pick up cats like that. So that's disassociating. And people do it, right? We all do it because it's hard to hold the duality. Yep. It's uncomfortable, yeah. right? And so a lot of the work I do with people, a fair amount of my clients are either not american born themselves or have a parent who isn't or in some way identify as other, if I can use that term, whatever that, that means in this day and age. And so we do a lot of processing around like what comes up when you, you know, you want to move away from these values of your parents. What are your values? Like, is there any, is there any overlap between your core values and your parents' core values? What if there's not? What if, you know, like it's a dance. Mm -hmm. It really is. Where else can people go learn about you and and your work? And we'll put it all in the show notes too. So my website is mayabenatar.com, M-A-Y-A. B-E-N-A-T-T-A-R.com. Unfortunately, no relationship to Pat Benatar, (laughs) the 80s singer. And you can also find me on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Maya. This has been so much fun. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.